0: We're in Revelation chapter 20, if you want to turn there. Well, good morning. morning. It's good to see so many of you here. I I really kind of thought maybe it would be me and Pastor Ken and Dan today. (laughs) So many of you brave the ice and snow. Glad you did. I'm also glad for those of you who are joining us online right now, thanks for for being a part of what we're doing in our worship here this morning in that way. So we're in Revelation chapter 20. We're getting close, church. And as we get closer to the end of this great book that we've been studying through, uh, the passages get more cheery. <laughs> and I, for one, <laughs> who have been charged with studying it this last year, am happy for that. Uh, we, are, we are at the part of the book now where we see the outcome for the saved Uh, we're getting close and uh, that is a uh, a joyful experience for those of us who have made that decision to put their faith our our faith and our trust in jesus christ for our salvation amen so here we are revelation chapter 20 we're just going to look at the first six verses today Uh, let's begin together and, and read this passage then i saw an angel coming down from heaven Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is the word of our Lord. So how should we understand this passage? What's, what's happening here? Uh, the Probably this morning, I should say that I'm going to be doing a bit more teaching than preaching. No promises, but I, I can't imagine I'm going to get too animated this morning. But I want to unpack this with you uh, because these verses reference events that occur in this. And I'm going to put it in quotes because Bible scholars disagree on this. These verses reference a a period of time that is called in the text a thousand years, a thousand-year period of time. For this reason, we call it in theology, in Christian theology, we call this the doctrine of the millennium. A millennium is, of course, a thousand years. And within Christianity, there are certainly differing beliefs concerning this passage, and and again, if you've been tracking with us over the last year in our study of Revelation, that's not a surprise to you, that Bible scholars view this passage in different ways. I'm going to talk to you this morning about what I consider to be the two dominant views, and that's the premillennial view and the millennial view. And if you're a note taker, there is a note sheet in your bulletin that might be helpful. Uh, you can also find it on the version app uh, for the, ser- the sermon this morning. There's two dominant views. And, and I cannot, I, we just don't have time for me to do either of these justice. And so I'm going to make this very simple, hopefully not too simplistic, but very simple this morning and just give you the basic ideas. Now, if you've studied Christian theology at all, and specifically eschatology, eschatology is the study of the end times, I'm sure that you've bumped up against both of these views. You've seen them. If you know the doctrine of our church, uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands to see how many of you have read our church doctrinal statement, uh, but if you have read that doctrinal statement in our church constitution, you've bumped up against one of these views, and I'll And I'll certainly tell you when we get there which one we hold to as a church. But I want to start just by offering simple explanations of each of these. So let's start with amillennial. The amillennial view contends that the millennium is symbolic, completely symbolic. And it's symbolic for the church age. So in the passage that we're going to study through together the people who hold to the amillennial view would say that this is symbolic. This thousand-year period of time is symbolic for something. What's it symbolic for? This is, according to their thinking, the period of time between the first and the second comings of Christ. So when is that? Right now. So those who hold to the amillennial uh, view of eschatology of what this passage references. And I have to say, this is really it. We're going to look at some other verses that kind of contribute some thinking to this, but this is really where we can get the doctrine of the millennium from, the verses that we're, we're looking at this morning. So they would look at this thousand years referenced in these verses. is not an actual thousand years, but just like, and this is fair, Just like in other places in Revelation where numbers are symbolic, they would see this 1,000 years as being symbolic. And it's actually the entire church age. So what does that mean? From the time the church started, when Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and then launched his church up through now, where we're presently living, until Christ returns again for us, we are actually living in the millennium in this period of time. That's what they would say. So, it references the church age. Now, the other view is the premillennial view, and this is what we hold to uh, here at Fellowship as a church. This contends that the millennium is still to come. Christ will return to the earth, he will defeat his enemies, and then he will reign on the earth for a thousand years. Now, among even premillennial theologians and Bible scholars, people who hold to the premillennial view, some would see this as a literal 1,000 years, right, to the day. The rain is going to start, and 1,000 years later, it's going to end, and eternity will begin. And others would say, you know, that really doesn't matter. Numbers are symbolic in the book of Revelation, but it's going to be a really long period of time. So whether it's 1,000 years or not, there would even be some disagreement uh, among scholars who hold to the premillennial view. But the idea is that this 1,000-year period of time will lead into the final judgment and the beginning of eternity. So here's the question. Why does fellowship hold to the premillennial view? Why is it that we have sided on this side of the conversation? Well, I would say that there are reasons that are both biblical and historical. We have historical reasons for being premillennialists, and we also have some biblical reasons. And again, I don't have time to unpack all of this for you this morning, so let me give you a very simple historical reason or a very simple description of why this is a part of our history as a Baptist church. Let's go way back, first of all. First of all, many of the earliest church fathers held to this view. They were premillennialists. Let me just give you a few examples. Justin Martyr, an early church father, and also Irenaeus. Those names may or may not be familiar to you, but they were second, third generation after the apostle paul they both lived in the 2nd century so they were like let's say the spiritual grandchildren of paul as he was planting churches they were the church fathers a little farther down the road the church actually debated this in the early church in early church history they debated this for the first few centuries of our history until augustine in the 5th century, early 5th century, very persuasively argued for the amillennial view, not the premillennial view. And if, if you've heard that name before, St. Augustine, in the early 5th century, he kind of won the day for the amillennial view. And that was actually the common view view among the Christian church for many centuries after that. So. What we need to understand then is that the premillennial view reappears in the 18th century. And it reappears among a few different de- denominations. Uh, it, was very, it became very prevalent in the Pietist movement uh, in the 18th century. Uh, the Plymouth Brethren would be another denomination we would be familiar with. And also this small denomination known as the Baptists. In the 18th century, we became premillennialists. And so, for that reason, this view, the premillennial view, that's the historical reason that we have now accepted it as our doctrine here at Fellowship, because it's been a part of our doctrine for the last two to three hundred years. However, I want to be quick to say that this is certainly not in a category of topics that we should allow to be divisive among us. Let me phrase that differently. This is certainly in a category of topics that we can agree to disagree on, even within our own church body. And and here's what I'm saying. I want to be so crystal clear on this because I don't want there to be any confusion Or division among us. What I'm saying to you is that if you have studied the end times, if you're a student of theology and you've done some reading on this, and you have arrived at an amillennial view, in other words, your view is that we are now, right now, living in the millennium, the period of time that the verses that we just read are talking about. Please do not think that that means you should find a different church. We don't want you to go anywhere. We want you to stay here. This is definitely in that category of things that it's okay if we don't all see it the same way. And and let me push that a little farther. There are a lot of very well-respected Bible scholars today, names that you would know, and names that probably some of you listen to. You podcast them or you watch them preach on YouTube who believe in the amillennial view. And so that's okay. That's not something that we should divide over or that you should sit there and hear as I, because what I'm about to present to you is a biblical premillennial view from my conclusions on this. But what I don't want you to hear is, oh, well, Pastor Terry and... Fellowship is pre-millennial, so I should probably find a different church. Absolutely not. This is definitely one of those things where it's okay that we all come to our own conclusions on. I believe that the pre-millennial view, though, does fit better with what we read here in Revelation chapter 20. And so that's what I'm going to unpack for you. The biblical evidence to me makes the pre-millennial view more compelling. And so let's look at the text together and we'll see at least why I think that and maybe at least some of you will agree with me this morning. Let's look at the text together. Verse one, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. So the English Standard Version, let's talk about this very quickly. We've actually covered this ground before Many, I think, months ago now, the first time we talked about the abyss in the book of Revelation. But the English Standard Version translates the Greek word abyssos into the English phrase bottomless pit here. And, of course, this is also where we get our English word, the abyss. And the abyss, as we know now from our study, appears a few other places in Scripture uh, Luke chapter 8 verse 31 uh, is that passage where we find a group of demonic beings begging Jesus not to cast them into the abyss. And it's kind of an odd passage. If it's their home, why don't want, why don't they want to go there? Well, home isn't so great. And so they actually asked ask if they can be cast into a group of pigs. And and so that's what happens in that passage. They don't want to go to the abyss. And the abyss has already been referenced a few times in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 9, if you wanted to turn back there, you'd see that we learned that the abyss is the home of not only demonic creatures that are unleashed on the earth, but it's also where the king of the abyss, uh, Abaddon is his Hebrew name, Apollyon is his Greek name. If you fast forward a little bit to chapter 11 in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, we see that the abyss is also the home of the beast. So, this is home turf for de- demonic beings. The abyss, Abusos, what we're reading about right now. And then in Revelation chapter 20, John sees this angel. If we go back to the first verse, he sees this angel with a key to the abyss, and he's holding a great chain with him as well. Well, what's the chain for? John unpacks that for us and tells us in the next couple of verses. So, if I were making a legal case, right now. Uh, for the premillennial view, I would call the next couple of verses exhibit A. So here's my exhibit A for the pre-millennial view. Let's look at verses 2 through 3 again. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit. And Look at everything he says here. I just want to point this out as we're going through it throws him into the pit, he's got a chain on him already. He throws him into the pit so he's chained up in the pit and then he shuts it and seals it over him. Why does he do that? John tells us so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until when until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So let's let's dig through that a little bit. in verse two, First of all, all four names used for Satan in Revelation are brought together in verse 2. Why do you think John does that? I think he wants us to be completely sure of who we're talking about right now, that who he is talking about is the dragon. The Greek word is dracon. Uh, he's talking about the ancient serpent. The Greek word is ophis. and, and ophis means in Greek it's a serpent or a snake. He's talking about the devil. The Greek word is diabolos. It's where we get our word diabolical from. But literally, it means slanderer. He's talking about Satan. Literally, in in Greek, it's Satan. (laughs) In Greek and English, we just took that one from the Greek completely. So this is who he's talking about. It's all referencing the same person, the same created being, that fallen angelic being who has been our chief adversary as Christ followers for the last 2,000 years, and before that, the adversary of the people of God. That's who John is referencing here, the big dog on the other side of this war that's being waged, Satan. That's the point. John wants us to be so clear on who is being taken captive by the angel and that he's being very securely imprisoned Chained. The door is shut. It's sealed over top. Why? So that he can't deceive anybody. During what? The millennium. See, I would call that exhibit A to why we as a church are premillennialists. There's a lot of emphasis given to the extent of Satan's captivity here. And and why, again, is all of this done to him? Don't miss this. I'm going to say it one more time so that he will not be able to deceive the nations. Now, I want you to remember back to what I was talking about in the beginning about the amillennial view. The amillennial view would argue that we are presently living in the millennium. The text just told us that during the millennium, during the thousand years, that are being talked about, Satan is securely locked away. But the amillennial view would say that that's where we're presently living, in that time that the millennium is the church age. If this were true, then we are now living in the period of time where Satan is imprisoned and ineffective. My biggest objection to the amillennial view, is that Satan sure does not seem to be bound right now, does he? He seems to be doing everything he can do to deceive people, and he seems to be doing it quite well. He's good at his job. He's very effective. And this has been the case since the very beginning of the church. Let me show you what Paul wrote here uh, to the Corinthians first. Paul writes to the Corinthians In their case, the God, lower G, on purpose, of this world, this is referencing Satan. In their case, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, who is one day going to take over the church from Paul. And he writes to him concerning elders and pastors in the local churches that Paul and Timothy and Titus and others have been planting. And he writes in 1 Timothy, he says, Moreover, he must be well thought of. He's talking about pastors. He must be well thought of by outsiders. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What Paul is describing here, first to the Corinthians and, and also to Timothy, is a very active Satan a Satan that's very effective at what he's doing, It to me, it just doesn't seem to fit with the amillennial view. Peter writes to the church, and he says, be sober-minded. He's talking to elders here. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Revelation chapter 20, church, the, the passage that we're studying this morning, states that Satan is bound and locked away. The millennial view is that Revelation chapter 20 references the church age, but that doesn't seem to work with these and other New Testament passages, and it also doesn't seem to work with our present experience. Don't you feel and believe and see a very active adversary? both in your own life and in the lives of other people? To me, this is very compelling evidence for the premillennial view. And I'm going to say it again. If you see it differently, that's okay. Don't go anywhere. (laughs) Stay here at Fellowship. We can agree to disagree on this. We're all trying to study Scripture and come to our best conclusions. But to me, the premillennial view makes more sense with this. Now, looking at verse 3, Satan will be released after the millennium for a time. Why? Why would God let Satan go? (laughs) I mean, he's got that punk in a cage. He's chained up. This is the weirdest parole. Is Joe Augusta here this morning? I didn't see him. Joe is a probation officer. That's why I'm pointing him out. Anyway... Why would God give Satan a parole after all of this? To me, this is one of the more interesting plot turns. If you look at the book of Revelation just as a literary, literary work, which we, of course, know it's so much more than that, but if you saw it just as a story, what an interesting plot turn. Why would you give Satan a parole? Well, of course, there's a lot of conjecture about this, and and the text never clearly tells us. And so, we, we are, again, we're all just taking our best guess at some of this and, and why this happens and why that happens. But here's where uh, I'll throw out a lifeline to a very well-respected respected, uh, conservative Bible scholar named Grant Osborne. He gives us one possible reason, and I like what he writes here. He says, God's purpose is to prove The extent to which total depravity controls the unbelievers. Now think about this, what he says here. For the entire thousand years, the nations will dwell under Jesus' benign rule and will not experience the evil of Satan. One thousand years, people will live on the earth without the influence and the deceit and the deception and the work of the demonic realm. Grant Osborne continues to write, though, yet the moment Satan is released, they are all deceived all over again and flock after him. Thereby they prove the eternal hold that sin has over them and demonstrate the necessity of eternal punishment at the final judgment. The millennial reign is the final proof, the judicial evidence of the guilt of sinners. What Grant Osborne is very clearly saying to us is that when Satan is released, he will be effective again at deceiving people. He tells his lies, and and once again, he convinces the unsaved to follow after him. Could this be, church, the plan of God to demonstrate once and for all the extent of human depravity? C.S. Lewis once talked about this idea, and he said this, and I think this is so important for us as we follow after Christ. Every single day, we are either taking one step toward Jesus or we are taking one step away from Jesus. Every day of our lives, there's, there's no neutral. There's no neutral in the Christian life. You are either moving toward Christ or you are moving away from Christ. And and so for someone who has moved away from Christ throughout their entire life, why would we think that's ever going to be any different? Now, often it is, praise God, Often, the Holy Spirit intervenes. And we probably all have a story, myself included, of something like that, of someone who (laughs) lived in their sin and they seemed to love it and enjoy it and they lived this crazy, sinful life, right, their entire life, and then on their deathbed, they respond to the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And amen. Praise the Lord for that. That is a wonderful thing. And I've, I've been there at the bedside of a family member and our extended family when that happened. A, a guy who had, did not want to have anything to do with Jesus throughout his life. But when it was coming down to the end and, and he saw the frailty of his own life, he reached out to Christ for salvation. And he seriously came to Christ, and I would never doubt that. And I think in that moment, I'm just going to be honest, I think in that moment he thought God was going to take him that day. But God didn't. He's in that hospital bed, and he accepts Christ, and he's crying, and I'm crying, and we had a couple of their family members there, and they're crying, and he comes to Jesus in faith. And I think he thought that he was going to die that day. God gave him about four or five more weeks to kind of start walking out his faith, and he did, and he took some first steps with Jesus. That's an awesome miracle story. But for so many people, for so many people, they walk away from Christ every day and they just keep walking that direction. And we who claim to follow Christ Church, we need to understand that too, that we need to keep walking after Jesus and, and not fall into neutral. I think maybe the reason God lets the punk out of his cage after the millennium, is to show once and for all that the sin of man is eternal and that unless Christ is in our hearts, we will always choose our sin. And if the sin of man is eternal, doesn't it make more sense that punishment should be eternal? Don't we sometimes wrestle with that? I'm just being real with you. Maybe you've never wrestled with this, and I'm just giving you the inner workings of my mind right now. Maybe it's just me. An eternity of punishment for a lifetime of sin? Does that seem fair? Have you ever struggled with that idea in our theology? But what if that person would always choose their sin? What if a thousand years later, a thousand years after having no influence from Satan no influence from the demonic realm whatsoever, all of a sudden Satan is now an option for them and they go flocking after him. And church, that's what we're going to see is the very thing that happens in the text. And so if the sin of man is eternal, if man would always choose their sin without Christ, then it makes more sense that punishment would be eternal as well. Verse 4, Let's look at verse 4. We need to bring this to a conclusion here. Verse 4, John describes what will happen at the beginning of the millennium. So now we're going back to the beginning. He told us that Satan's going to be released at the end, but what about the beginning and what happens throughout? He writes, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Who does John see seated on the thrones here? Those to whom, as he writes, the authority to judge was committed. He, He sees those who had remained faithful to Jesus and had been martyred for their faith. There are other passages in the New Testament that speak to this as well. Let me just show you a couple. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says to the apostles during his earthly ministry, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is Jesus to the apostles. all right. But then Paul writes later to the Corinthians that this authority to reign... Wouldn't just be limited, whoops, it's already there for you, wouldn't just be limited to the apostles. And first Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Here's talking about all of those who have trusted in Christ. And and if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge? What does he say? Angels? We are to judge angels how much more than matters pertain to this life. If you read the context of what Paul's writing here, he's talking about believers dragging other believers into court. And he's saying, what are you guys doing? Why are you dragging each other before sinners, courts, the the Roman court system? Why would you do that? Why there's no one wise among you that can solve this issue? Can solve this dispute. We're, and that's when, when he lays this on them and says, We're gonna judge angels one day. And if we're going to judge angels, I think we can figure out, you know, whose chariot belongs to who. That's the argument that Paul lays out for the Corinthians. So John sees those here back to Revelation. John sees those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation who have remained faithful to him until the very end. Please notice also in the text that the saints came to life and reigned with Christ for a 1,000 years. Their resurrection happens at the beginning of the millennium. I would call that, by the way, exhibit B, if I were giving a legal argument, which I guess I am, for the premillennial view. And then to finish our passage in verse 6, John offers some commentary on what's happening here. So let's just look at that together. The last verse and what we're studying this morning, John says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So just notice the three characteristics of those who take part in that first resurrection. This is all in verse 6 for you. But look at the three characteristics. First of all, the second death has, has not power, has no power over them. Believers in Christ here receive the crown of life rather than receiving the second death. They have been granted eternal life. This is what the Apostle Paul also writes to the Corinthians. You see it in chapter 15 on the screen. Where he says, "When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the same that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting?" Isn't that one of the most beautiful parts of our faith that once we have trusted in Christ for our salvation. That salvation is eternal. The gift of trusting in Christ, brothers and sisters, is that we will spend eternity with him. We are the recipients of eternal life. And second of all, don't miss in verse six, that last verse, that we will be priests of God in Christ. And and this has already been referenced multiple times in Revelation, so not going to take time on this but believers will join with the angels in worshipping God for eternity and then third and finally they will reign with him for a thousand years and we've just discussed that none of that sounds too bad does it eternal life worshipping our king forever and reigning with him sounds pretty good Grant Osborne, I think, sums this all up very well. And let me just end with this quote. He says, the purpose of this earthly reign of Christ is twofold. He's going to give you both of these just in case you missed one as we were going through it. He says, the vindication and the exaltation of the saints. Who are the saints? Us. The vindication and the exaltation of the saints providing an important transition from their earthly suffering to their heavenly glory. And here's the second point, the second reason, the final proof of the eternal nature of the depravity of sinners. The implications for us are critical. Those who choose the world throughout their lives and plan to make a last-minute decision for Christ. Now, notice what he's not saying. He's certainly not saying last-minute decisions for Christ don't happen. But he's saying if that's your plan, that if you think you're going to choose the world, what was the illustration I gave you? That you're going to walk away from Jesus every single day, walking toward your own sin, and your plan is that you will make a last-minute decision for Christ. So, as to get into heaven, you're deluding yourself, he writes. Every day they turn from Christ further hardens their hearts, and if they have time at the end of their lives to make a decision, it will be governed by a lifetime of rejecting Christ. And then here's the good news for those of us who have decided to follow after Jesus Christ. And I pray that that's everyone in this room. This millennial period will be a glorious time of enjoying Christ's presence and getting to know the countless believers from throughout history. Amen? Can I ask you, you don't need to respond or raise your hand or anything, but can I ask you, are there people that you are looking forward to seeing again? those who have gone on from this life. Maybe it's the person who led you to Jesus in the first place. Maybe it's a childhood Sunday school teacher or a grandparent or a great-grandparent. Or maybe it's a great hero of the faith, kind of a silly idea in Christianity, since in the kingdom, uh, the, the least, I think, is what Jesus said, will be the greatest. But someone that you look, look up to in the, the pages of Scripture... Or someone that you, oh, I just can't wait to meet that person. We will have the millennium to get to know those people all over again and to worship Christ, and then eternity begins. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads in prayer and worship team, come and join me? Just want to pray, and we're going to sing, and then we're going to move into our time around the Lord's table. Father God, thank you so much for your great love for us. I love the verse that we read earlier in our time of worship and singing. That, Lord, your love is so great for us that you actually sing over us. God, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that kind of love. Lord, that not only has secured our salvation, but it teaches us how to love others. Lord, may we consider these days that we have in this life as a gift from you to be used to be witnesses to those who do not yet know you i'm just going to ask right now as, as we just have a moment of silence and stillness just take a few seconds and let an image come into your mind of someone that you care about that as far as you know has not yet made a decision to follow after christ Heavenly Fathers, we think on these people. Would you give us an opportunity? Would you open a door? Would you prepare the way? Would you soften their heart? And then, Lord, give us the boldness to just speak the truth in love, to share the gospel with them, to introduce them to Jesus so that they, too, can be among the saved. They, too, can come into the worship of the living God. God, I pray that you would use us in the days to come. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.